Chapter Fifteen, Section Two of Capital, Volume One. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Anna Simon. Capital: A Critical Analysis of Capitalist Production, Volume One, by Karl Marx. Translated from the Third German Edition by Samuel Moore and Edward Eveling, and edited by Frederick Engels. Part Four. Production of Relative Surplus Value. Chapter 15. Machinery and Modern Industry. Section 2. The Value Transferred by Machinery to the Product. We saw that the productive forces resulting from cooperation and division of labor cost capital nothing. They are natural forces of social labor. So also physical forces like steam, water, etc., when appropriated to productive processes, cost nothing. But just as a man requires lungs to breathe with, so he requires something that is work of man's hand in order to consume physical forces productively. A water-wheel is necessary to exploit the force of water, and a steam-engine to exploit the elasticity of steam. Once discovered, the law of the deviation of the magnetic needle in the field of an electric current, or the law of the magnetization of iron around which an electric current circulates, costs never a penny. Footnote Science, generally speaking, costs the capitalist nothing, a fact that by no means hinders him from exploiting it. The science of others is as much annexed by capital as the labor of others. Capitalistic appropriation and personal appropriation, whether of science or of material wealth, are, however, totally different things. Dr. Ure himself deplores the gross ignorance of mechanical science existing among his dear machinery-exploiting manufacturers, and Liebig can a tale unfold about the astounding ignorance of chemistry displayed by English chemical manufacturers. End footnote. But the exploitation of these laws for the purposes of telegraphy, etc., necessitates a costly and extensive apparatus. The tool, as we have seen, is not exterminated by the machine. From being a dwarf implement of the human organism, it expands and multiplies into the implement of a mechanism created by man. Capital now sets the laborer to work, not with a manual tool, but with a machine which itself handles the tools. Although, therefore, it is clear at the first glance that, by incorporating both stupendous physical forces and the natural sciences with the process of production, modern industry raises the productiveness of labor to an extraordinary degree, it is by no means equally clear that this increased productive force is not, on the other hand, purchased by an increased expenditure of labor. Machinery, like every other component of constant capital, creates no new value, but yields up its own value to the product that it serves to beget. In so far as the machine has value, and in consequence parts with value to the product, it forms an element in the value of that product. Instead of being cheapened, the product is made dearer in proportion to the value of the machine. And it is clear as noonday that machines and systems of machinery the characteristic instruments of labor of modern industry, are incomparably more loaded with value than the implements used in handicrafts and manufacturers. In the first place, it must be observed that the machinery, while always entering as a whole into the labor process, enters into the value-begetting process only by bits. It never adds more value than it loses on an average by wear and tear. Hence, there is a great difference between the value of a machine and the value transferred in a given time by that machine to the product. 
The longer the life of the machine in the labour process, the greater is that difference. It is true, no doubt, as we have already seen, that every instrument of labour enters as a whole into the labour process, and only piecemeal, proportionally to its average daily loss by wear and tear, into the value-begetting process. But this difference between the instrument as a whole and its daily wear and tear is much greater in the machine than in a tool, because the machine, being made from more durable material, has a longer life, because its employment, being regulated by strictly scientific laws, allows of greater economy in the wear and tear of its parts and in the materials it consumes, and lastly, because its field of production is incomparably larger than that of a tool. After making allowance, both in the case of the machine and of the tool, for their average daily cost, that is, for the value they transmit to the product by their average daily wear and tear, and for their consumption of auxiliary substance, such as oil, coal, and so on, they each do their work gratuitously, just like the forces furnished by nature without the help of man. The greater the productive power of the machinery compared with that of the tool, the greater is the extent of its gratuitous service compared with that of the tool. In modern industry, man succeeded for the first time in making the product of his past labour work on a large scale gratuitously, like the forces of nature. Footnote. Ricardo lays such stress on this effect of machinery, of which, in other connections, he takes no more notice than he does of the general distinction between the labour process and the process of creating surplus value, that he occasionally loses sight of the value given up by machines to the product, and puts machines on the same footing as natural forces. Thus, quote, Adam Smith nowhere undervalues the services which the natural agents and machinery perform for us, but he very justly distinguishes the nature of the value which they add to commodities. As they perform their work gratuitously, the assistance which they afford us adds nothing to value in exchange. End quote. Ricardo, Locusiteto, pages 336 and 337. This observation of Ricardo is of course correct in so far as it is directed against J. B. Say, who imagines that machines render the service of creating value which forms a part of profits. End footnote. In treating of cooperation and manufacture, it was shown that certain general factors of production, such as buildings, are, in comparison with the scattered means of production of the isolated workmen, economized by being consumed in common, and that they therefore make the product cheaper. In a system of machinery, not only is the framework of the machine consumed in common by its numerous operating implements, but the prime mover, together with a part of the transmitting mechanism, is consumed in common by the numerous operative machines. Given the difference between the value of the machinery and the value transferred by it in a day to the product, the extent to which this latter value makes the product dearer depends in the first instance upon the size of the product, so to say, upon its area. Mr. Baines of Blackburn, in a lecture published in 1858, estimates that, quote, each real mechanical horsepower will drive 450 self-acting mule spindles with preparation, or 200 throstle spindles, or 15 looms for 40-inch cloth with the appliances for warping, sizing, etc. End quote. Footnote. A horsepower is equal to a force of 33,000 foot-pounds per minute, that is, to a force that raises 
33,000 pounds one foot in a minute, or one pound 33,000 feet. This is the horsepower meant in the text. In ordinary language, and also here and there in quotations in this work, a distinction is drawn between the nominal and the commercial or indicated horsepower of the same engine. The old or nominal horsepower is calculated exclusively from the length of piston stroke and the diameter of the cylinder, and leaves pressure of steam and piston speed out of consideration. It expresses practically this. This engine would be one of fifty horsepower if it were driven with the same low pressure of steam and the same slow piston speed as in the days of Bolton and Watt. But the two latter factors have increased enormously since those days. In order to measure the mechanical force exerted today by an engine, an indicator has been invented which shows the pressure of the steam in the cylinder. The piston speed is easily ascertained. Thus, the indicated or commercial horsepower of an engine is expressed by a mathematical formula, involving diameter of cylinder, length of stroke, piston speed, and steam pressure simultaneously, and showing what multiple of 33,000 pounds is really raised by the engine in a minute. Hence, one nominal horsepower may exert three, four, or even five indicated or real horsepowers. This observation is made for the purpose of explaining various citations in the subsequent pages. F. E. End footnote. In the first case, it is the day's produce of 450 mule spindles, in the second of 200 throstle spindles, in the third of fifteen power looms over which the daily cost of one horsepower and the wear and tear of the machinery set in motion by that power are spread, so that only a very minute value is transferred by such wear and tear to a pound of yarn or a yard of cloth. The same is the case with the steam hammer mentioned above. Since its daily wear and tear, its coal consumption, etc., are spread over the stupendous masses of iron hammered by it in a day, only a small value is added to a hundredweight of iron, but that value would be very great if the cyclopean instrument were employed in driving in nails. Given a machine's capacity for work, that is, the number of its operating tools, or, where it is a question of force, their mass, the amount of its product will depend on the velocity of its working parts, on the speed, for instance, of the spindles, or on the number of blows given by the hammer in a minute. Many of these colossal hammers strike seventy times in a minute, and Ryder's patent machine for forging spindles with small hammers gives as many as seven hundred strokes per minute. Given the rate at which machinery transfers its value to the product, the amount of value so transferred depends on the total value of the machinery. Footnote. The reader who is imbued with capitalist notions will naturally miss here the interest that the machine, in proportion to its capital value, adds to the product. It is, however, easily seen that since a machine no more creates new value than any other part of constant capital, it cannot add any value under the name of interest. It is also evident that here, where we are treating of the production of surplus value, we cannot assume, a priori, the existence of any part of that value under the name of interest. The capitalist mode of calculating, which appears prima facie, absurd, and repugnant to the laws of the creation of value, will be explained in the third book of this work. End footnote. The less labor it contains, the less value it imparts to the product. The less value it gives up, 
so much the more productive it is, and so much the more its services approximate to those of natural forces. But the production of machinery by machinery lessens its value relatively to its extension and efficacy. An analysis and comparison of the prices of commodities produced by handicrafts or manufacturers, and of the prices of the same commodities produced by machinery, shows generally that, in the product of machinery, the value due to the instruments of labor increases relatively, but decreases absolutely. In other words, its absolute amount decreases, but its amount relatively to the total value of the product, of a pound of yarn, for instance, increases. Footnote. This portion of value which is added by the machinery decreases both absolutely and relatively when the machinery does away with horses and other animals that are employed as mere moving forces and not as machines for changing the form of matter. It may here be incidentally observed that Descartes, in defining animals as mere machines, saw with eyes of the manufacturing period, while to eyes of the Middle Ages animals were assistants to man, as they were later to von Haller in his Restauration der Staatswissenschaften. That Descartes, like Bacon, anticipated an alteration in the form of production and the practical subjugation of nature by man, as a result of the altered methods of thought, is plain from his Discours de la méthode. He there says, Il est possible, by the methods he introduced in philosophy, de parvenir à des connaissances fort utiles à la vie, et qu'au lieu de cette philosophie spéculative qu'on enseigne dans les écoles, on en peut trouver une pratique par laquelle, connaissant la force et les actions du feu, de l'eau, de l'air, des astres et de tous les autres corps qui nous environnent, aussi distinctement que nous connaissons les divers métiers de nos artisans, nous le pourrions employer en même façon à tous les usages auxquels ils sont propres, et ainsi nous rendre comme maîtres et possesseurs de la nature, and thus contribuer au perfectionnement de la vie humaine. End quote. In the preface to Sir Dudley North's Discourses upon Trade, 1691, it is stated that Descartes' method had begun to free political economy from the old fables and superstitious notions of gold, trade, etc. On the whole, however, the early English economists sided with Bacon and Hobbes as their philosophers, while at a later period the philosopher of political economy in England, France and Italy was Locke. End footnote. It is evident that whenever it costs as much labour to produce a machine as is saved by the employment of that machine, there is nothing but the transposition of labour. Consequently, the total labour required to produce a commodity is not lessened, or the productiveness of labour is not increased. It is clear, however, that the difference between the labour a machine costs and the labour it saves, in other words, that the degree of its productiveness does not depend on the difference between its own value and the value of the implement it replaces. As long as the labour spent on a machine, and consequently the portion of its value added to the product, remains smaller than the value added by the workman to the product with his tool, there is always a difference of labour saved in favour of the machine. The productiveness of a machine is therefore measured by the human labour power it replaces. According to Mr. Baines, two operatives are required for the 450 mule spindles, inclusive of preparation machinery, that are driven by one horsepower. 
each self-acting mule spindle working ten hours produces thirteen ounces of yarn average number of thickness consequently two and a half operatives spin weekly three hundred and sixty five five eighths pounds of yarn footnote according to the annual report eighteen hundred and sixty three of the essen chamber of commerce there was produced in eighteen sixty two at the cast steel works of krop with its one hundred and sixty one furnaces thirty two steam engines in the year eighteen hundred this was about the number of all the steam engines working in manchester and fourteen steam hammers representing in all one thousand two hundred and thirty six horsepower forty nine forges two hundred and three tool machines and about two thousand four hundred workmen thirteen million pounds of cast steel here there are not two workmen to each horsepower and footnote hence leaving waste on one side three hundred and sixty six pounds of cotton absorb during their conversion into yarn only one hundred and fifty hours labor or fifteen days labor of ten hours each but with a spinning wheel supposing the hand spinner to produce thirteen ounces of yarn in sixty hours the same weight of cotton would absorb two thousand seven hundred days labor of ten hours each or twenty seven thousand hours labor footnote babbage estimates that in java the spinning labor alone adds one hundred and seventeen per cent to the value of the cotton at the same period eighteen hundred and thirty two the total value added to the cotton by machinery and labor in the fine spinning industry amounted to about thirty three per cent of the value of the cotton on the economy of machinery pages one hundred and sixty five and one hundred and sixty six and footnote where block printing the old method of printing calico by hand has been superseded by machine printing a single machine prints with the aid of one man or boy as much calico of four colons in one hour as it formerly took two hundred men to do footnote machine printing also economizes color and footnote before eli whitney invented the cotton gin in seventeen hundred and ninety three the separation of the seed from a pound of cotton cost an average day's labor by means of his invention one negress was enabled to clean one hundred pounds daily and since then the efficacy of the gin has been considerably increased a pound of cotton wool previously costing fifty cents to produce included after that invention more unpaid labor and was consequently sold with greater profit at ten cents in india they employ for separating the wool from the seed an instrument half machine half tool called a churka with this one man and a woman can clean twenty-eight pounds daily with the churka invented some years ago by dr forbes one man and a boy produce two hundred and fifty pounds daily if oxen steam or water be used for driving it only a few boys and girls as feeders are required sixteen of these machines driven by oxen do as much work in a day as formerly seven hundred and fifty people did on an average footnote see paper read by dr watson reporter on products to the government of india before the society of arts seventeenth april eighteen hundred and sixty and footnote as already stated a steam plough does as much work in one hour at a cost of threepence as sixty-six men at a cost of fifteen shillings 
I return to this example in order to clear up an erroneous notion. The fifteen shillings are by no means the expression in money of all the labour expended in one hour by the sixty-six men. If the ratio of surplus labour to necessary labour were one hundred percent, these sixty-six men would produce in one hour a value of thirty shillings, although their wages, fifteen shillings, represent only their labour for half an hour. Suppose, then, a machine costs as much as the wages for a year of the one hundred and fifty men it displaces, say, three thousand pounds sterling. This three thousand pounds sterling is by no means the expression in money of the labour added to the object produced by these one hundred and fifty men before the introduction of the machine, but only of that portion of their year's labour which was expended for themselves and represented by their wages. On the other hand, the three thousand pounds sterling, the money value of the machine, expresses all the labour expended on its production, no matter in what proportion this labour constitutes wages for the workman and surplus value for the capitalist. Therefore, though a machine costs as much as the labour power displaced by it costs, yet the labour materialised in it is even then much less than the living labour it replaces. Footnote. Quote, These mute agents, machines, are always the produce of much less labour than that which they displace, even when they are of the same money value. End quote. Ricardo, Locusateto, page 40. End footnote. Thus, the use of machinery for the exclusive purpose of cheapening the product is limited in this way, that less labour must be expended in producing the machinery than is displaced by the employment of that machinery. For the capitalist, however, this use is still more limited. Instead of paying for the labour, he only pays the value of the labour-power employed. Therefore, the limit to his using a machine is fixed by the difference between the value of the machine and the value of the labour-power replaced by it. Since the division of the day's work into necessary and surplus labour differs in different countries, and even in the same country at different periods, or in different branches of industry, and further, since the actual wage of the labourer at one time sinks below the value of his labour-power, at another rises above it, it is possible for the difference between the price of the machinery and the price of the labour-power replaced by that machinery to vary very much, although the difference between the quantity of labour requisite to produce the machine and the total quantity replaced by it remain constant. Footnote. Hence, in a communistic society, there would be a very different scope for the employment of machinery than there can be in a bourgeois society. End of footnote. But it is the former difference alone that determines the cost, to the capitalist, of producing a commodity, and, through the pressure of competition, influences his action. Hence the invention nowadays of machines in England that are employed only in North America. Just as in the 16th and 17th centuries, machines were invented in Germany to be used only in Holland, and just as many a French invention of the 18th century was exploited in England alone. In the older countries, machinery, when employed in some branches of industry, creates such a redundancy of labour in other branches, that in these latter the fall of wages below the value of labour-power impedes the use of machinery, and, from the standpoint of the capitalist, whose profit comes not from a diminution of the labour employed, but of the labour paid for, renders that use superfluous and often impossible. 
in some branches of the woollen manufacture in England, the employment of children has during recent years been considerably diminished, and in some cases has been entirely abolished. Why? Because the Factory Acts made two sets of children necessary, one working six hours, the other four, or each working five hours. But the parents refused to sell the half-timers cheaper than the full-timers. Hence the substitution of machinery for the half-timers. Footnote. Quote, Employers of labour would not unnecessarily retain two sets of children under thirteen. In fact, one class of manufacturers, the spinners of woolen yarn, now rarely employ children under thirteen years of age, that is, half-timers. They have introduced improved and new machinery of various kinds, which altogether supersedes the employment of children, that is, under thirteen years. For information, I will mention one process as an illustration of this diminution in the number of children, wherein, by the addition of an apparatus, called a piecing machine, to existing machines, the work of six or four half-timers, according to the peculiarity of each machine, can be performed by one young person, over thirteen years. The half-time system stimulated the invention of the piecing machine. End quote. Reports of Inspectors of Factories for 31st October, 1858. End footnote. Before the labour of women and of children under ten years of age was forbidden in mines, capitalists considered the employment of naked women and girls, often in company with men, so far sanctioned by their moral code, and especially by their ledgers, that it was only after the passing of the act that they had recourse to machinery. The Yankees have invented a stone-breaking machine. The English do not make use of it because the wretch who does this work gets paid for such a small portion of his labour that machinery would increase the cost of production to the capitalist. Footnote. Wretch is the recognised term in English political economy for the agricultural labourer. Quote, machinery can frequently not be employed until labour, he means wages, rises. End quote. Ricardo, Locusiteto, page 479. End footnote. In England, women are still occasionally used instead of horses for hauling canal boats, because the labour required to produce horses and machines is an accurately known quantity, while that required to maintain the women of the surplus population is below all calculation. Footnote. See Report of the Social Science Congress at Edinburgh, October 1863. End footnote. Hence, nowhere do we find a more shameful squandering of human labour power for the most despicable purposes than in England, the land of machinery. End of Part 4 Chapter 15, Section 2